Today, uh, I've entitled the message, The Man Who Won't Go Away. Because every time you have these Pharisees and teachers of the law and the Herodians, it seems like Jesus is there too. And they would just like him to go away, to get rid of him. And you know, I think that's a lot of our society today as well, that people want to get rid of Jesus, they want to get rid of the truth, they want to get rid of the Bible, they want to do everything to belittle and dilute and downsize the divine. And the one thing that we must do as the body of Christ, and as I've even challenged our leaders to do, is we must maintain a high view of God. We must maintain a high view of Scripture regardless of what the culture does. I love what Billy Graham said. He said, the Bible will always be the center of controversy. And I think it's true. And Jesus will always be the center of controversy. And he is here. And so as we look at this text this morning in Mark chapter 3, in our journey with Jesus, we see the man who won't go away. He just keeps coming back. So in Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, Jesus enters a house again. A crowd gathers so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So here we see as Jesus continues to carry out his mission, we see three responses to Jesus and his message. The first two are negative, and the third one is the one that we should all be embracing in our lives. So what is the first response that we see? Oh, kids are dismissed. If you have children that need to be dismissed, make sure they are dismissed. Maybe we'll get there, maybe we won't. There we go. So the first response is not kids leaving for the practice. The first response is they mislabel Jesus. Notice what it says in verse 20. This crowd gathers. His disciples are not even able to eat. 
His family hears about this, and they went to take charge of him, for they said he's out of his mind. He is mislabeled by his family. It's not moving. Uh, he is mislabeled by his family. They're saying he's out of his mind. They're accusing him of insanity, that he is not thinking rationally. This is a strong indictment against the competency of Jesus. And what do we see in our world today? We see the same thing. People think that what Jesus teaches and what he requires is out of, he's got to be out of his mind. They're saying, Jesus, you're out of control. You need help. The man who won't go away is mislabeled by his family. His family totally misunderstood who he was and what he came to do, that he came to rescue them from their sin by dying on the cross. They're saying, you know, if there would have been a psych ward, they would have admitted him, that he must have had a mental breakdown. That's pretty strong. And notice what it says in verse 21, when his family heard about this, the question is, what did his family hear? <laughs> that he wasn't eating, he was doing ministry all the time. Uh, the family could have had legitimate concerns, but it was not based on facts. Misunderstandings often happen in families because people do not have all the facts. But here's a good reminder for all of us. Even Jesus did not live in a perfect family. Think about that. Jesus, the perfect, sinless son of God, did not live in a perfect family. Obviously, he's being accused by his family. And yet God wants us to get along as families. It is easy to attach labels to people. In his book, Less Than Human, Professor David Livingstone Smith explains that even ordinary people can demean, enslave, and kill other human beings. Based on Smith's research, it all starts with one important ingredient, the dehumanization of the victims. He goes on to say, Thinking about your enemies in subhuman categories is a way of creating mental distance, of excluding them from the human family. It makes murder not just permissive, but obligatory. We should kill vermin or predators. He goes on to explain that the early American settlers in Arizona characterized Native Americans as savage beasts. The Nazis depicted Jewish people as rats. The Japanese invaders of China called their victims chankoro, which means something subhuman like a bug or an animal. Prior to the 94 Rwandan genocide, the Hutus killed the Tutsis, routinely referred to them as cockroaches. Americans fought barbarian Huns in World War I and godless gooks in Vietnam. When we slap a dehumanizing label on people, it is much easier to strip them of their dignity and mistreat them. And what did they do to Jesus? The man's insane. Subhuman. Something's wrong with him. And they wanted to take him away. They wanted to control Jesus. See, he wasn't acting in a way the family thought he should act. 
And the actual word here, when it says that they went to take charge of him, in verse 21, means to restrain, lay hold of, and even in another section of Scripture, it means to arrest. They were seizing Jesus to take him away. This man who won't go away will just have to take away. That's what they were saying. Here's the question, though. Was a family really concerned about Jesus, or were they more concerned about their family name? Were they more concerned about their family image? What will people think of our family if we don't do something with them? <laughs> do we get concerned about our family image more than pleasing God, doing what God wants us to do? The crowd also was operating out of selfishness. They wanted what they wanted. They were not concerned about the needs of Jesus. Obviously, he wasn't eating. They wanted Jesus to fix them, to heal them, to minister to them, to pay attention to them. They wanted to dominate and control him. The crowd, as well as his family, failed to see who Jesus was and what he came to do. So they mislabeled him. The second thing they did, if it'll move on, is they misjudge Jesus. They misjudge him. There it goes. He was falsely accused by the religious leaders. Jesus had been working tirelessly, preaching, teaching, healing, casting out demons. His family wants to take him to Nazareth. And during this time, it says in verse 22, the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said he's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. Now, when it says he went down, they went down from Jerusalem Capernaum was actually north of Jerusalem because Capernaum is like 700 feet below sea level. Jerusalem is over 2,500 feet above sea level. So whenever you leave Jerusalem, you're going down. No matter if you're going north, south, you're going down somewhere. But here's the thing. From Jerusalem up to Capernaum was 100 plus miles because they would also go around Samaria. Remember the Jews wouldn't go through Samaria. They went around it about a hundred miles, which tells us this, the incredible animosity toward Jesus by these teachers of the law, the scribes. They hated him. They misjudged him. This man who wouldn't go away is stirring up more trouble. And what does it tell us? The teachers of the law who came down said he's possessed by Beelzebub. It seems like they're all in agreement, which means they must have had a little short formal meeting and voted and said, this guy's crazy. He's full of the devil. And they all in unison said he's full of the devil. How does Jesus respond to this serious indictment? He responds with questions. He challenges them to think a little deeper. He knew that the thinking of his accusers was distorted because it was not based on truth. One theologian suggested two possibilities when he said he's possessed by Beelzebub. Beelzebul was the prince of demons whose name could possibly mean Lord of the Flies. He was Lord of that which is rotten and repulsive, Lord of the dung heap. More likely, however, the name means Lord of the house or the temple. They mean that they were calling Jesus Baal, the prince, which means he is the ruler of a house or a dynasty of demons. Here's what they were saying. 
everything Jesus is doing, healing the sick, raising the dead, healing the leper, healing the man with the withered hand, all those things he was doing, casting out demons, he was doing by the power of Satan. That's what they were saying. The exact opposite of what was true. And when you go over to verse uh, 30 in our same chapter, it says, He said this because they were saying, He has an evil spirit. And this is the idea of not only were they saying it, they said it over and over and over again that this is who Jesus was and what he was doing. The scribes are declaring by their constant insults that all the good work that Jesus is doing in the power of the Holy Spirit is being done by the power of Satan. The scribes' hearts are blinded to the truth and their blind heart leads to a hard heart. With hardened hearts, writer Bavink calls this a sin against the gospel in its clearest manifestation. The scribes are guilty of calling the only one who is good and calling him evil. Some of you will remember Peter Falk. He was an actor who spent his career playing a wide range of roles in comedy and drama, and probably his most well-known role was Columbo. In real life, Falk had a glass eye, resulting from an operation from a cancerous tumor when he was three years old. In spite of his missing eye, he was a high school athlete. In one story he liked to tell, after being called out at third base during a baseball game, he removed his eye and he handed it to the umpire. <laughs> he said, you'll do better with this. <laughs> and I wonder if Jesus ever thought, I, I just need to take my eyes out and give it to these blind scribes. They don't see it. They don't get it. They're rejecting his words and his works. They're rejecting his miracles and his acts of mercy, which is really quite undeniable as he performs them right in front of their eyes. They do not deny that he cast out demons. That was kind of hard to deny when they saw it. But here's what they did deny. They denied that he was doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin that he's talking about here is to consistently reject the truth and to believe that the message and the miracles of Jesus come from an evil source and not the Spirit of God. These scribes were saying that Satan was behind all that Jesus was doing and saying. And whoever does that consistently and refuses to change his mind will never be forgiven of that sin. He goes on to say in verse 23, so Jesus called them in parables. He said, how can Satan drive out Satan? Evil spirits are on the same team, so how could Satan cast out Satan. He would be working against himself. That makes no sense. He says if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. Satan would be defeating and destroying the very kingdom he's trying to build. Saying that makes no sense. 
In verse 27, he says, Jesus is saying that the, Satan is the strong man and no one can defeat this strong man and strip him of his possessions unless he is stronger than the strong man. And as Jesus performs his miracles, he is breaking into the house of Satan and he is binding Satan and he is showing that he is stronger than the strong man in the house. He is delivering people from bondage. His house cannot continue as it is stripped of its possessions. The man who won't go away is stronger than Satan. Jesus is stronger than Satan. He's stronger than disease. He's stronger than death. He's stronger than demon possession. I don't know what you have going on in your life. But God is stronger than whatever it is you need help with. Maybe your marriage is struggling. God is strong enough to strengthen your marriage. Maybe you have family issues going on, that there's a family image that is there, and it's strictly an image because behind closed doors, it's World War III. The enemy is at work in your home. Will you bring that to Christ? Will you allow him to help you with that? You see, the scribes, in their spiritual blindness, they do not allow them to, it does not allow them to see who Jesus is and where he is getting his power and authority to do what he is doing. This ultimately, what Jesus will do when he goes to the cross is he will bind the strong man, Satan, and he will crush his head, and he will gain salvation for all of us. He says in verse 28, I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. That's a very strong statement in Scripture. In fact, it's the only sin, the Bible says, that is not forgivable, is the unpardonable sin. Every other sin is forgivable. Jesus extends his mercy and forgiveness to those of us who confess our sin and repent of our sin and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The unpardonable sin is committed by one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. I think here's a good way. This comes from Daniel Aiken. It's a little bit small. I apologize for that. But here's what Daniel Aiken says in his commentary. The unpardonable sin is to knowingly, willingly, and persistently attribute to Satan the works of God done by and in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit who testifies to these truths in your heart. And if we were to break this down, it is a sin of full knowledge. He goes on and he lists seven things about the unpardonable sin. It is a sin of full knowledge. Two, I didn't put these on the PowerPoint. It is an ongoing disposition of the heart that resists the conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
If the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin and you resist that conviction, you are working against the Holy Spirit. And if you have that as an ongoing disposition of your heart, there is no way you can be forgiven of your sin. Thirdly, it is a verbal act that attributes the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan. A verbal act that attributes the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan. Fourthly, it is a willful rejection of God's grace in Jesus. When you willfully reject the grace of God in Jesus. Five, it is rooted in unbelief. Rooted in unbelief. Six, it is a sin. This is important. It is a sin a Christian cannot commit. Because you've received the grace of God. And seven, it is a sin not committed by one who is concerned that he may have committed it. Why? Because you have a sensitive spirit then. And so it's not a sin committed by one who is concerned that he may have committed it. But it's to knowingly, willingly, and persistently attribute to Satan the works of God done by and in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit who testifies to these truths in your heart. And I share that because that's obviously a very important passage and that comes from the lips of Jesus. Well, those are the first two is to mislabel Jesus and to misjudge Jesus. And those are important because I have seen where people are going through a hard time in their life through some illness, tragedy, deep hurt in their life. And oftentimes, unfortunately, they will blame God. Maybe not outwardly. I've heard people say, God hates me. Now, is that true? That's the exact opposite of the character of God. For someone to say that God hates me is the exact opposite of the truth. God doesn't love me. That's not truth. It's false. But we do see in human life, right, with Job... Job is going through his illness. He's questioning God. He's questioning what is happening in his life. And I can tell you, and I won't go into detail because I've shared this with you before, but when I did not get the pastorate position at our former church in Virginia, it broke my heart. And God used it to break my heart. And I, I wondered, what in the world, God, are you doing? So I'm, I'm telling you, you know, the, there is a human element. There is a human struggle, but I think that struggle is good because in the process of that, of crying out to the Lord, he's saying, wait. That's what God kept telling me is wait. I'm like, I, I, okay, I'll wait, but what am I waiting for? That's the part he wouldn't tell me. <laughs> what am I waiting for? I don't understand. And it was just Wait. Trust me, and God is good, 
And God led us to this church as a result. But here's the thing. What if I would have turned my back on God and said, I'm done with this? I would have missed all that God had for me. And we have to be careful that we don't mislabel Jesus and we don't misjudge God who loves us and sent his only son to die on the cross. There are many, many angry people in our world today that are blaming God for all kinds of things. We live in a fallen, broken world and sinners will hurt sinners. We do that. But we have to come back to the truth. God loves us. God is perfect. His wisdom is unmistakable. I may not understand it. I may not comprehend it. But it's unmistakable. There may be times where it feels like God's hand is against you. But here's what I can guarantee you. His heart is always for you. You may feel his hand against you, but his heart is always for you. Well, the last one here is the positive one that we all need to embrace, and that is to model Jesus. Not to mislabel him, not to misjudge him, to model him. He tells us in verse 31, Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting there. They told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? Now, he wasn't doing this like, I don't know who they are. <laughs> and he wasn't being disrespectful to his family. He was trying to get them to think spiritually and eternally, not just physically and biologically. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, which I'm sure would have included the disciples, and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother, brother, and sister, and mother. The man who won't go away demands us to do his will. We do not join God's family by physical birth. You may be in a Christian home, teenager, but that doesn't make you a Christian because mom and dad are Christians. It doesn't make you a Christian because grandma and grandpa are Christians. What makes you a Christian is when you realize that you are a lost sinner bound for an eternal hell, separated from God because of your sin, but only because of the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross that was shed for you can you be forgiven and become his child. And you can play all kind of games and put on all kind of masks and faces, but God sees through every mask and every false pretense you have, regardless of what your parents think. You will stand by yourself before the throne of God and give an account of your life. I will stand before God and give an account of my life. The man who won't go away demands us to do his will. We do not join God's family by physical birth. We do it by repenting of our sin and confessing it and being broken over that sin that I have violated God's law 
and I deserve his wrath. So we join his family by doing his will. But let me quickly say this because this sounds like a works-based answer. What is his will? God's will is that we believe in him. We put our faith and trust in him. That is his will. He says in John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We believe in his name. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God's will is that we believe in him. He also tells us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I did that as a young boy. I gave my life to Christ. I haven't done it perfectly since that time, but I'm God's child. You are God's child if you have made that decision. But from there, we are to learn to do the will of God. That's what he says, whoever does my will. Believing is the first step, and believing is an action word. It's a lifestyle that we are involved in. He answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Luke 8, 21. Tim Keller said, Remember a child in a family obeys, not in order to be loved and accepted, but because he already is loved and accepted. And just a couple more. God's will is that we should be sanctified. We are to be changed people from the inside out. We don't think like the world. We don't act like the world. We don't talk like the world. We are different people because of the power of God in our lives. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4, it is God's will that we should be sanctified. And part of that sanctification process, which, and this was so prevalent in Bible times and it's just as prevalent today, he says that you would avoid sexual immorality. You see, sexual immorality is not to be named among God's people. God says we are to be pure. We are to be holy. Not act in passionate lust like the heathen who don't know God. But he says we are to control our body in a way that is holy and honorable. That's what the scripture says. So when we talk about the will of God, that we would be sanctified, that we would be pure, holy, righteous people in all that we do. He tells us that we are not to be conformed to this world. God's will is that we renew our mind to discern God's will. Renew your mind to discern God's will. God wants to lead us in our lives. We have to seek to renew our minds for him to lead us and guide us where he wants us to be. Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed 
by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what God calls us to, that he wants us to model Jesus to the world. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. As you do, let me ask you a question. Have you mislabeled Jesus because of something going on and you misjudged him because of something going on in your life? Or could you honestly stand up and testify, God is good, God is great, I know he loves me. There's nothing wrong with human struggle. I think we're supposed to struggle. That's what builds our faith. God will bring things into our life that might not make sense. I couldn't make sense out of all God was doing in my life. But I do know this, he was changing me. He wants to change you. And sometimes it's going through hard things that God will bring into our lives to change us. Maybe there's somebody in your life that you're like, you know, I just wish they would go away. <laughs> like we want Jesus to do. Perhaps God has that person in your life for a reason. To grow you. God is faithful. And he is good. Maybe you've got something going on in your family and your image is far more important than pursuing God. Oh, I can't share with that, you know, that weakness. I can't let people know we have that going on in our family. Um, let me remind us, we're all broken. Not kidding anybody. Jesus was in a broken family. They were accusing him of being insane. We're all broken. We have brokenness in our family. We need the grace of God. We need the forgiveness of God. It's a false pretense to pretend that you don't have issues. <laughs> we all have them. And we all need the Lord. Have you come to the point in your life where you are honestly seeking to model Jesus? Not just on Sunday morning, on Monday at work, on Tuesday afternoon, on Friday night, when you're with your peers, there's nobody else around. When you're the only one alone, is modeling Jesus the most important thing in your life? Or if God called your number up today, would you be ready? Would you be ready to meet your maker? It's an important question. If you don't have a personal relationship with God, that's where doing the will of God begins to have a personal relationship with God, to invite him into your life, to make you a new person. We can't do it ourselves. 
If we could, Jesus didn't need to die on the cross. We need him. I need him. You need him. We all need him. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.